In this episode of the IOBound podcast, Dusty and I discuss a recent bug in Ford infotainment systems due to a Texas Instruments driver bug, a recent Privacy Not Included article about how your car spies on you, what it spies on you about, and how to see exactly what your car spies on you and what their privacy policy covers in nice clean steps and nice tables, and finally, multi-factor authentication and how TOTP actually works, and more specifically, how and where secrets are stored, so you can be more secure about how you handle your TOTP. You're listening to the IOBound Podcast, where our disks are busy and our CPUs are doing absolutely nothing. I happen to have a vulnerability that we could chat about. Uh, this is a little bit old at the time of recording this, and will probably be pretty old by the time you hear this. Um, but another, a big surprise, uh, infotainment system hack. Uh, the register has the article. I looked into it a bit. And basically, it is your classic buffer overrun in a Texas Instruments Y-Link driver. The chips in question are WL18 series, I believe, after that. The one I had grabbed just as an example was WL1805 mod. So this one is part of their Y-Link 8 series. Uh, it's a bug in the driver code that Texas Instruments released. And if you were to send, I think it's a type of parsing bug, it's a, a packet parsing, and you could send a malicious packet and the Wi-Fi driver um, would cause a buffer overrun, and it was actually possible to uh, include a payload that would execute arbitrary code. So uh, Ford actually released a statement saying that essentially if you just disable Wi-Fi in your system settings so like in the vehicle settings if you just disabled wi-fi then it should go away yeah you know it's the it's the classic we shipped you a fancy new feature for your car that you don't need but you might not want to use it now because it's a problem and we put basically zero thought into implementing it correctly and we don't intend to support it going down the road yeah and at the time of like re-reviewing this uh i don't think there was actually a real patch from ford I, I don't know if they actually intend to fix this bug. I, I would hope so. To be clear, their statement said, we've we've looked at options for addressing this. They didn't really say they have made anything or that they intend to release anything anytime soon. So we'll see. Yeah, we'll, we'll see. Essentially, we're aware of the problem, but we'll see what the feature holds. Um, it's interesting to know that I have, I don't know what the difference is, I guess, but, and we can't know exactly what hardware is in these things, but uh, I just bought a 2023 Bronco and all the new ones have sync four and they specifically mentioned that you know this the this cve is for sync three systems but i think it's certainly worth recognizing that as much as we we can have a problem with our phones or our computers the, you know, the websites we use or whatever you know collecting information or causing uh problems in our life i think it's uh disappointing that if you really dig into it, there's just as many problems with everything in our life, including our cars. Um, you know, I know that like for me, if I go into my menu, you know, in my, in my Bronco, I can, you know, turn off telemetry by default. It's on by default, your driving statistics are on your, uh, Wi-Fi system is on your modem is on. Um, there's a lot of things that are on and you can, you know, flip a switch and turn them off. What does that do? I don't really know. It would take a lot more investigating to figure out. And uh, I would love the ability to purchase a car that is a nice modern car that doesn't have so much technology in it that can become a, a, a vulnerability for me, but it's not possible. So 
the source code itself is not available. However, it is obtainable behind a paywall. I don't know what that paywall looks like, but I do know a good portion of Texas Instruments source code is available. I mean, you do need it to develop. So as far as when they hand the driver code over to, or you purchase, you know, your chips, you need the driver code as part of it. You're paying for that along with the chip. So you do actually need the source code so you can compile it into your RTOS or into the driver modules or some type of package that you can ship it in. So I wasn't actually able to take a look at the source code. They did show a couple lines of C to patch it. So if you didn't get the patch directly from Texas Instruments, which I'm not even sure that they did, or depending on when that release would end up hitting your IDEs um, or your source code packages, they gave you the exact line in the source code and the C code that you should change to fix that exact bug. So theoretically, you know, your manufacturers that are packaging up these drivers for your vehicle, you know, they'd have the exact location and function name and uh, line number to patch that. But to finish your point, as far as buying a new vehicle that didn't have all of this junk, um, that'd be nice if somehow that was optional. Uh, I don't know any way of manufacturing that where that could be optional, I guess, but it'd be nice to have a nice new car where, one, I didn't want it, and two, I didn't have to pay for all of those features that I'm never going to use because they're way too big of a security vulnerability in, like, every case. A lot of it isn't even by choice. So, for example, I, I believe, I'm, I'm speaking off the top of my head here, but I believe in 2018 or 2019, Congress decided that we need to, every single car needs to have a backup camera. Um, and I don't remember like what, but by what year that was, I think it was by, you know, 2024, 2025 or whatever. I mean, I get the point of it. The point is, you know, Hey, we should stop killing people with our cars, but I don't like besides emissions, which is a whole nother, whole nother topic. Um, the ability for, you know, our government to determine like, these are the electronic components you have to have in your car. And then how, how do the auto manufacturers make that worth their time? to build for you so that they can sell you a, a feature. And we see this across, you know, everything in tech where cars have become like technology just as much as they become transportation. And um, you see this with, you know, like cell phones and stuff like that too. For example, like we talked about last week on your iPhones. Um, in 2016, you know, Apple started using artificial intelligence and I guess it might've been around 2013 and then eventually by 20, sorry, by 2016, the iPhone 10, they implemented a, you know, a neural engine by mandate that your, your phone be able to, to run tasks and notice things and identify things on device. Like the thing you own now, uh, is, is going like, it's got hardware built into it that was there for scanning for whatever, but it's for scanning text, scanning images, scanning you know, what you say, what you type, like there is a specific specific hardware built into your device to scan things for you. And that's by mandate. Um, but it's sold to you as a cool feature. So they're like, hey, you know, we'll organize your photos by recognizing faces in your photos app. That's amazing, right? Look at this cool feature we built just for you. You know, iPhone, that's privacy. I'm not trying to turn this back into a phone show, but this is what happens, you know, with our cars too, is, uh, it's mandated we have this feature, and then the auto manufacturers say, well, how do we leverage that for profit? Which is fair, it's a company. But it becomes a problem when uh, it's not implemented safely, it's not maintained, and what happens when you buy a car and you know 
five years down the road, you don't get software updates anymore. You're not buying a car as often as you buy a computer or a cell phone. And uh, is, it the, is it the obligation of the auto manufacturer to, uh, to monitor and patch vehicles indefinitely? I mean, is this car just going to be, uh, you know, is this Windows 7 rolling around on the road anybody can exploit five years down the road from now? I don't know. Not even five years. I mean, I should say, yes, uh, f five years, but I'm thinking even longer term. What happens in 20 years? I mean, I still see 20-year-old vehicles all over the place, but even older vehicles. I mean, not the majority, but a non-small uh, portion of them. What happens in 20 years? I mean, to be fair, I don't know that I expect cars that are manufactured right now to last 20 years, uh, but that's a totally different story. So, I mean, I think that's a big deal because normally you wouldn't expect a manufacturer to honor repairs or updates or that kind of stuff beyond like the warranty period or at least not uh, critical uh, that, that aren't critical rather updates after the warranty period. Right. That's how most every OS operates. It's how most software manufacturers operate. That's how most like computer hardware manufacturers operate is that. You, it works until your warranty period's up, and then after that, the only thing that matters are, like, critical or by law. Yep. Well, it's a fantastic thing, I suppose, that we're talking about vehicle privacy and uh, information that these manufacturers track uh, on your vehicles. Your telematics is what the name of it is called, right? And we just kind of spoke how a good portion of that is mandated. However, we also said that uh, it's probably mandated pretty or implemented rather pretty poorly and it turns out that mozilla has i believe the name of their uh, privacy yep. not included which is that's what it's called fantastic so they reviewed 25 car brands and they gave them each like 25 dings i believe they called it and that was a deduction based on if it passed or failed like a, a portion of a test that they set up for it and it turns out every vehicle that they tested which was 25 all failed all of their tests. So uh, I, sh I guess I should be more clear. We'll break down exactly which ones failed which tests, but there weren't any vehicles that didn't fail a single test. That's what that means. Yeah. I mean, I just, I think it's it's crazy uh, to think that we even have to have a conversation about whether our cars are, uh, are going to invade our privacy. <laughs> Other than like, yeah. And they break there's, that down. There's a long article and there's a ton of information in here and I would encourage anybody to read it, but... It, it's kind of one of those things, I mean, like that we go through at work is like the only thing we can do is spread the word about it because I, I mean, I mean, I suppose convince manufacturers to change things. But I mean, as far as vehicles that have already been produced, there's not a whole lot you can do with that. And they probably won't get any better. As far as the exact test criteria, I would suggest going to look at the article to see the exact uh, criteria that they fell under. But basically, it was just we know these vehicles are collecting data. So it's just are they collecting data? Yes, that checks basically every box do you have any control over the data that it collects what types of things do they collect and how much of that information is shared and do you have any control over that information being shared so out of those 25 uh it turns out 21 of them uh so i, I they break it down into percentages but to be honest i think it's a lot easier or at least more fair for you to understand because it was only 25 vehicles not or 25 manufacturers more specifically so i think that's kind of important that's a, a fairly large number of auto manufacturers. At least they took like the largest ones. So it's not insignificant to say 25 of them, but I think it is more accurate to acknowledge the numbers out of the numbers that were tested than just percentages, because it sounds a lot worse when you say 79% of all cars, blah, blah, blah. So 
I'm just going to use the numbers of the vehicles that passed or failed these. So 21 of them, uh, of the brands, uh, share your data. 19 of them share what they called personal data, and that was different than, say, like, just your telematics locations, that kind of stuff. But the stuff that it collected from, like, your apps or the personal information that you gave your app. Um, and I suppose that covered even, like, further things of, like, maybe what your cameras record. Uh, personally identifying information. And in some cases, they, like, claimed to be anonymous. But Mozilla found out that kind of really wasn't the case at all. And most of it wasn't actually anonymous. In We all know at this point there's no such thing as anonymous data. So I think Mozilla did, privacy not included, did a good job at sort of disclosing what they mean by you know, maybe what you should be concerned about as far as personal data or privacy data or anonymized data. And, you know, we mostly know that there's almost always a way to deobfuscate data in almost any capacity. However, like, what does that actually mean? How much work does it actually take? But in this case, it was basically not anonymous. So of the 25, 14 of them share your data with government or law enforcement, and that's without a warrant. And they even had a little statement from Hyundai that says they will comply with lawful requests, whether former, formal or informal. You could come up with a lot of scenarios, I think, where information about you and your vehicle, where it was parked, what temperature, what time of day, you know, obviously physical locations, how many people were in the car, how heavy were they? Um, what temperature did you run it at, you know, your, your climate control, what phones were connected to the infotainment system. Right? Those, those will all be collected and they're all sent. And that information is sold to the highest bidder. Well, realistically, any bidder, anyone who's willing to throw money at it. Well, we already <laughs> so, know who, like, w- one of the things that we've covered at work was we were looking at um, what are the options for remote uh, changing like re- remote interaction with the vehicle and how could we do that in a, in a cool way. Um, and what we found was slightly terrifying. Um, in the case of Ford, um, they've, they've got uh, an entire like data backend for interacting with vehicle data. And it's freely available essentially to anyone who wants it. Uh, anybody who wants to build an application, sign up for an account and use their API can do that. And at that point, you basically just need a VIN number. And um, sort of what we found, because like our original goal was we want to do something cool with cars, like, you know, make it so you, we can do a live stream of a car and then you like type something into like chat on YouTube and then it sends a command to the car and like unlocks it, turns it on, something like that. That's kind of what we were going for. We're like, oh yeah, you can totally do most of that. But what happened is we found that Ford has built an entire system essentially geared towards, um, towards, uh, insurance companies being able to use their APIs to collect vehicle data. Um, so imagine this, imagine you go to sign up. Everybody hates insurance, right? I don't know about you, but like, I think that everyone I know, uh, is, uh, not a fan of insurance companies, not a fan of having to pay for it. Not a fan of the fact that I basically have no choice and I'm not a fan of the prices that are constantly changing with zero transparency. I think it's all BS. Imagine that at your insurance company, without you knowing, can, can see how you drive, meaning when you drive, where you drive, how far you go, uh, how fast you stop, how fast you accelerate. Are you on the road or are you off road? Are you aggressive? Do you listen to loud music in certain scenarios? Like have an entire profile on you as a driver to be able to decide 
what are your chances of costing me money? And then base your price on that. So like if we say, I want transparency in pricing, is it based on the kind of car that I drive or my history of uh, have I wrecked or not? No, 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 that's not good enough. We need to know exactly how you stop, how you accelerate, um, how many people you typically carry with you, what where areas you spend most of your time in, and all of that is available. Transparent to you. You have no idea. And it's also it's not even just that. It's, it's available to anyone who wants to be able to collect it, essentially, with a VIN number. Yeah, I mean, yes, there are a couple hoops you have to jump through, but it's not all that difficult if you're in the business to capture that information. So if you're in the automotive business, rather, and you have a little bit of money to pay yep. for API access. So all of the scenarios you could walk through, what I want to be a clear takeaway is that there basically is no modern automotive vehicle brand that doesn't collect some amount of uniquely identifiable information about how you drive, who you are, who you drive with, how you stop, how you accelerate, how often you fill up your fuel tank, when you wait to fill up your fuel tank, what terrain you typically will drive through, how sharp you corner. Those are almost all data points that are regularly transmitted. And at the moment, there is no real way of turning that off. And in a lot of cases, it can be very illegal to tamper with any of those features. Right? If the only way to turn off your modem is by modifying a calibration file in the ECU, even if it's just turning switches on or off, right? technically that can be considered tampering, which would be under penalty of law. So you can get in some very serious trouble. There basically is no legal way for you to turn these features on or off to protect yourself in the United yeah. States anyway. So even further from here, um, let's talk about, uh, well, I guess one last stat. Uh, two of the 25 brands which were actually owned by the same parent company allowed you to actually even control what was tracked and how to track it and i think they were fairly clear that that didn't really mean a whole lot like i think it was one of those like uh you know accept your cookies kind of thing like sure you can turn it off but it's extremely difficult to go through those steps to like figure out how to turn it off and all the hoops you have to jump through but it can be done so that was that what you can do is, uh, there's a website, and I heard about this on a podcast you sent me. What was the guy's name? Uh, Michael Bazell. It's the Privacy, Security, and OSINT show. He brought up vehiclepricyreport.com slash report, and that was a website that allows you to type your VIN in, and I suppose you have to trust the site to give it away your VIN because of everything we just talked about, but if you did it will break down sort of step by step uh, or like all of the agreements and stuff you had to sign and where data goes about the vehicle uh, that you gave the VIN to. And it will sort of show you everything you need to be concerned about. I mean, I don't really expect any car made after like 2015 to not have all of these boxes checked, but yeah. Uh, the Privacy Security OSINT show episode 296 was the one where this was mentioned. So, uh, yeah, that was part because we were talking about vehicle privacy. So I, that was fantastically convenient that you sent me that. So on one of the Broncos, I was able to pull up some information and just take a look at what they tracked. And I don't know exactly how accurate these statements are. I mean, they have a sort of little breakdown about what they may collect or what they're allowed to collect. But 
Obviously, there's no way to know exactly what they do collect and who they share it with. But this one says it shares identifiers, it discloses and collects identifiers. Um, it captures location, which we know basically every Ford vehicle that has a modem does. User profiles. The manufacturer discloses that it collects personal data from form, create user profiles. Uh, shares it to, they share it slash sell it to affiliates, service workers, insurance companies, of course, and governments. That one's my favorite. Yeah. I suppose there is no fantastic way about discussing that particular thing. If y'all want to talk, if you guys want us to talk more about uh, automotive, whether it's from uh, emissions or policy standpoint or um, anything automotive, we can do that. We both work in the automotive aftermarket and uh, have uh, quite a bit of insight into, especially government oversight into how vehicles are made and used. We have firsthand experience. But for now, let's talk MFA. Ooh, big fan. Highly recommended. Uh, what's I think last week or the week before, maybe a little bit earlier than that, GitHub actually announced that you won't even be allowed to have a contributor account without MFA, some type of MFA enabled. I don't remember what their requirements were for. I'm, I'm assuming all of them, but just a neat little thing. I think uh, NPM also did the same thing, the package manager, node package manager, uh, a couple weeks ago, maybe a little bit longer. So if you don't have it enabled, I think they, I don't know what happens to your old stuff, but you do need to enable it in order to be able to contribute a uh, software contributor. But I kind of wanted to talk about TOTP as a form or time-based one-time passwords, right? TOTP. That is the most modern and I suppose arguably convenient form of two-factor authentication. Can we just talk about what the idea of a passcode so at first what is totp and why is that different from a password and like ideologically uh what is the purpose for them right so on top of a password right you will always have like say totp on top of a password and that is you have you're proving knowledge i believe was the way it broke down so you're proving that you know a piece of information that nobody else has. So you have a username of some sort, right, or email address, and then you always have proof that you have knowledge that matches, right, your key, your password, that username, and then you gain access or one step further. Multi-factor, you will be required to offer a second piece of information that is ideally entirely separate from, say, your password. And usually in some completely separate medium, meaning that they're, they're not actually associated with each other, right? So say in the same password manager. The idea is that you will always keep your second factor separate. TOTP is one of those methods that allows you to have a secret stored client and server side. And that secret is used to generate a one-time password that is time-based, which is the way you can synchronize data between client and a server without sharing any, say, secret information to a degree. Like, you're not sharing the secret that was used to generate the code. You're just sharing the code. So the idea is essentially, like, the, the overarching idea is uh, a password, and then another key is that you something you know and something you have. Like, you're authenticating by something you know and something you have. Correct. Something you know being your password, 
and maybe you store that in a password manager or something like that, but it's something that, that you have knowledge of. Um, and then something you have, the second factor should be whether it's a text message or an email or it's time, you know, time-based one-time passwords, uh, or if it's, uh, you know, a, uh, a pop-up you get when you sign into Google account and you need to verify from another device you're already signed into. The idea is something that you know and something that you have. And ideally, if somebody finds out something that you right. know, meaning your password, that they also won't have the thing that you have, which is the device that belongs to you and is in your possession. The point of multi-factor, multi-factor authentication is, is essentially that. Right. So proof of knowledge and proof of ownership, I believe, is how uh, it's broken down in OWASP. And TOTP is a very convenient option, and I mention it because it's something that I've implemented hands-on, line-by-line, and it's easy to implement, it's easy to screw up, but it's also one of the simplest methods that you can add outside of email or, say, SMS. And it's also entirely free. So that's why I like it, is that uh, I was able to write it exclusively in code, and I don't need another service provider, an email provider, SMS provider, that I will have to pay um, free service, whatever. I have to rely on a third party to prove your ownership. So TOTP works by sharing secrets. The secret size can vary, but generally it's something that is reasonably easy to write down or remember, so it's fairly short, like 20 bytes to, say, 32 bytes maximum. And it's always base32 encoded, so that means all letters uh, and numbers, so all base10, 0 to 9, and A through Z. Capital or lowercase doesn't matter. They're whatever the letter is, is considered uh, a number. And that's how your secret is generated and presented. So ideally that secret is nice and secure. However, it does have to be stored in a way that's recoverable, which means the server has to always have knowledge or be able to obtain that secret, right? Possibly it could be encrypted, say with your password or something, but that means if you ever lose your password, the server will never have information required to decrypt that secret again. Well, you kind of need that. And most websites offer the ability to reset your password without damaging, say, the, that secret. So the secrets are stored either in plain text or in a way that can be decrypted simply with knowledge of server information. So even if they are encrypted, that server will need to have an encryption key to be able to decrypt that or a database that can be decrypted that will eventually have plain text data that is only information that you needed from the server side of things. Now, that also means it has to be passed to the client. So when you take a screenshot or you, your QR code, you take a picture of that. That is just a TOTP URL that contains that base32 secret. And usually that secret is displayed in a sequence of like six characters or whatever, so it's easy for you to see and read and write down. But that QR code is just transferring that information in a computer-readable way. So you can just take a picture of it and your app will get that secret and store it. Now your device will also need to store that plain text secret. Right now, this isn't like private key, public key encryption, where only one side has private knowledge. Right in this case, both the server and the client both have a private secret. So, in a future episode, I'd like to talk about threat model understanding because I found a nice little guide I sent you um, that I think would be able to water down in such a way yeah. we can speak about it and help people understand their threat models. So. 
in the case of TOTP, again, really easy to set up, simple, essentially free for the server side. However, knowing that that server will have a way to access your seeker in plain text may mean that if there was an exploit or some type of exfiltration of data on the server side, that key might be recovered the same way. Uh, well, I guess passwords generally aren't recoverable. They're usually hashed. So there's no way to recover your plain text password back. But if you could find it through some other way or brute force, then you'd be able to, if you had the TOTP secret, generate TOTP codes and log in. I suppose how to store them or the best way to do it is probably a different discussion. But I just kind of wanted you to understand what TOTP is, how it's generated, and where that secret sort of lives. Again, that secret on your phone also has to be recovered in plain text as well. Maybe it's also worth mentioning being careful if you are going to do backups of your TOTP apps that you just be mindful that your backup is either encrypted or not. And if it's symmetrically encrypted, that password or passcode has to be somewhere. And so it's only as secure as that password again. So hardware options like YubiKeys exist where TOTP secrets, once they're stored on the machine or, or on the chip or the card itself, can never be pulled back off. And then you simply request it, generate a code for you because it's all built into the device and then you hand the code over. Now there are more enterprise software options like HashiCorp Vault, that's something I'm working on, where the same thing sort of happens, it's just in software where it doesn't allow you to recover the secret, it only allows you to generate codes or generate a secret itself, and then you can use that in other places. Takeaway being mindful of where those secrets are, how to secure those backups, and I would probably say that let's say you did want to go hardware route or YubiKey or Maybe you wanted to do uh, TOTP apps that don't allow backups or any way of exfiltrating those secrets. Having more than one, so more than one physical device, you can usually take a picture of that QR code or write that secret down um, into multiple different apps. Then you will not really have to worry about backing those files up and managing where those files are. Did you destroy them? Did you encrypt them? Where's the password to the encryption key, etc.? I think those are just things worth noting. Well, and you sort of run into a chicken and the egg problem. There's two paths to go down here. So first one, I guess, is uh, to try to understand it as much as possible. Uh, at the end of the day, your the implementation is that you're going to have, you if you have TOTP, if you're using time-based one-time passwords, and you have a, a key to generate those codes by time on your device, on any app, the server also has that same information which is how they can, how it can be. You right. can verify you, you have the same number. And so is it better to, to have TOTP than to not have TOTP um, or any second factor authentication? My answer would be yes, it's better to have TOTP than to not have TOTP. And in most cases, it's better to have TOTP than it is to have like a text or an email sent to you. There's so many ways that emails or text messages can be compromised. You know, one example that I'll give, and this is something just, just to think a little bit differently about how you receive authentication to get into your accounts. Google is probably one of the biggest problems when it comes to security. And it's I don't think it's Google's fault necessarily. I don't think Google itself is an insecure product. But I think the way people, people use and have the ability to use Google and what they could store in their Google accounts is a problem. People sign in often. So one of the one of the places I spend quite a bit of time 
Um, people are always signing into their Google accounts because that's where they store their emails and their drive files and their documents and things like that. And they'll use those for like presentations. And outside of the fact that people are signing into, you know, public computers with their Google accounts, which could be a problem, people often don't sign out of their Google accounts. And one of the problems with your Google account is that people, most people I know that are at all conscious about their passwords store them in their account, in their Google account. Most people um, that do decide to be a little bit more secure also decide to go for TOTP. And they don't know what that is. They just know they use Google Authenticator. And that's what most people know TOTP as Google Authenticator. Um, that is what that is. Google Authenticator app um, is a time-based one-time password app. Well, a few months ago, about, probably about what, four months ago now, Google did the uh, very friendly thing because so many people have problems with losing their, their one-time passwords, resetting their phones or losing their devices or whatever. Uh, they updated the app and they said, hey, do you want to back up your code? Do you want to sync your codes, your secrets um, with your Google account? Well, the issue is if everything that you, you have is stored in your Google account and everything is authenticated by your Google account, let's say you also use your Google account for signing into all the websites that you use, lots of people do that. Now your secret, your second, your second form authentication, the, the thing you have um, is tied to the exact same account as the thing you know. And that is a huge problem. And another thing that happened with uh, Google's Authenticator app was when they first released the option to sync your codes to your, your Google account, uh, they forgot this little thing where they were gonna send them encrypted. So they initially synced and were syncing for about a month after releasing that feature of the app that basically everyone uses uh, completely unencrypted as plain text, which is a horrendous problem. But you know, that's since fixed. But that doesn't solve the problem that, uh, that your second factor being tied to the same thing as your, your password, the thing you know and have, you no longer have something you know and have because they're all tied to the same account that is also tied to your data, which is the thing you're trying to protect. And so you could make the argument, and we kind of talked about this the other day, I, I think you could make the argument that storing, if you're going to have TOTP, it's better to have that than not. It's better than receiving a text message. It's better than receiving an email. But tying that information to the thing you're trying to protect, meaning your account that you're trying to sign into with that information is the problem. So if you could put them in levels of what is better, the worst thing is you just have a password and they're all the same. The next best step is have different passwords for everything. So you have like a password manager. The next best thing is to have second factor authentication and good passwords, any sort of second factor authentication, whether it's a text or an email or not, but that's so easy to comp uh, compromise. The next best thing from that is have different passwords for everything you sign into. Your passwords are stored separately from the account you're trying to access. And then having a uh, second factor authentication, at least like something to, like TOTP. And I don't think it matters. I think it's better to have, let's say a password manager because it's hard to implement this, right? Anytime you have to have a password that's already obnoxious, just using different passwords is a pain. And then having to get some other uh, application to manage basically another set of passwords like TOTP is even more frustrating. I think that even if you combine them, that's fine. It's better than not having it. And something like, you know, Bitwarden or LastPass or whatever, as long as it's a different service than the one that you're protecting your data with. That's my opinion. I would probably agree to that. Um, I think there's one very important thing to say that just remember a chain is only as strong as its weakest link. 
So if you're using... Never give anybody a nice wrapped up bow for all of the information they need to get to your life. So if you're using a password manager, and remember that there is one master password that, in case of Bitwarden and others, that encrypts all of your data. But you've put it in a nice bow in a package for me. So if I want to get your information, that's the only piece of information I need, right? To get all of your passwords, potentially your second factor authentication codes. If that's the only thing I need, I just need to know that you're on Bitwarden and then hopefully wait, maybe wait until there's an, uh, a hacker and exploit and leaked information. And then maybe I know who you are and I know what passwords you use. In the case of my friends, I know they're pretty insecure about their stuff. I probably could guess some of their passwords. If they're using something like Bitwarden just because they were told it's a better option for them. Well, now I have everything I need all in one place. I know where their accounts are. I know the websites they're hosted on. I know the email addresses they use. I know their passwords. And I know their second factor codes if they used it, right? So that's not always the end-all solution for you. And I think in a lot of cases, there will be no end-all solution for everybody. There will be what's best for you. Something else to consider in the case of, say, Bitwarden, they have a self-hosted option. So if you believe you can do it better, and I think in a lot of cases, you can simply by isolation, you can self-host all of your password, security codes, and all that fun stuff. Now, you also don't have to expose it to the internet, right? And or you could have VPN access and configure all of that so you can still use your phone with the Bitwarden app. So I think in a lot of cases, that can be an option. Definitely advocate for self-hosting, but I think that's what I just wanted to clarify. And for the super crazies out there that don't want to use any sort of uh, online accounts, there are options like KeyPass, um, where you can store a password vault locally on your machine. It is one file, it's an encrypted file, and you can transfer that that file, that encrypted file between devices, so say a phone or a computer, but there is no syncing. They're not online, it is just simply a file, and that's it, um, which is probably the most secure way to store your passwords versus- As a password manager. Yeah, as a password manager, just storing a vault on a device, but it's also the most likely to have problems, like you lose your computer or your hard drive fails and what do you do with backups and stuff like that so there's more to consider and that. there's always so much with backups uh, that's probably a whole topic for another show of just when you have keys and files and encrypted crap everywhere what do you do with that and like did you have old passwords and were they cracked and so if you have old you know snapshots of your vault and then maybe you had an insecure password that was locking all of those did you delete those vault files are they on the cloud can somebody obtain them there are so many things to worry about, even just with that vault file, right? Keeping in mind of where it's at, where you move it to, because it again, it's just a symmetric encryption. So if anybody has that one key, they can get everything they need. So if that data accidentally was backed up to the cloud and you happen to use uh, a somewhat insecure password or you slipped up once and you leaked it somewhere, then I have everything I need, all nice in a bow. Um, so can I give a recommendation? Uh, or at least say what I have found is the best solution that's possible, what you can use for TOTP apps. Do it. Uh, on iOS, there are multiple options. I recommend not using Google Authenticator. If you're currently on Google Authenticator now and you have an Android phone and you want to get away from Google Authenticator, you can export your accounts um, and import them into an app called Aegis or Aegis, A-E-G-I-S, um, that's available from F-Droid or from Play Store. Um, I recommend the F-Droid version. You can transfer directly from Google Authenticator into Aegis, um, and that gives you a whole lot better uh, options for securing those TOTP passwords. And if you like it, you can also export them 
in, an encrypted file um, to be able to re-import later back into Aegis if you need to in that same application. So either way, TOTP for Android uh, AGIS would be what I would recommend using. And then on iOS, there are a couple options. There's free OTP, and then there's obviously Google Authenticator, Microsoft, a bunch of others. Um, I think the probably the most reasonable solution that I've found when I'm using iOS, and if I'm using iOS and macOS, is uh, R-A-I-V-O. Um, it, it, it does allow you to import accounts, allows you to export encrypted accounts. It also gives you the ability to machine to machine uh, sync them. Say if you wanted to, you can also put the RAVIO app on your desktop and then over your over the same like protocol as AirDrop will sync between your two devices, but it does not sync to the cloud. So I think that everybody should just have a YubiKey. Uh <laughs> Well, that's, yeah. Yes, there's also so, that. But in a serious note, um, they're not for everybody. But I think a couple takeaways for uh, YubiKey that are worth mentioning. Secrets are not exfiltratable, or at least shouldn't be. Um, every piece of hardware device will have their flaws. You can have more than one of them, as long as you get the ones that support TOTP and other types of protocols, uh, PIV stuff, FIDO. You will be able to store those keys, those secrets, on the device or the device generates them so in the case of say totp you actually have to give it a secret but they have a nice desktop app it's just an electron app for you know cross-platform desktop and then for your mobile devices you don't really have to worry too much about your mobile devices being compromised in the sense of exfiltrating secrets they theoretically if were compromised could request they sign something or get that totp code and that's where your passwords come in so in the case of YubiKey, for every one of those slots is what they call them, so where all your secrets are stored, they will require you set up a PIN or a passcode to even gain access to those secrets or the functionality of said secrets. That also means that regardless of what device you have, as long as you have the YubiKey, um, you know, you can throw your phone in the water, you can go get a new one, you can lose it, you can get 10 other phones, you can use your friend's phone. doesn't really matter. You can switch it between your desktop and you can have all of those secrets on whatever device you want it to be on. And you don't have to worry about like the actual device or losing that device. So you can take your security steps more seriously when you know you have the YubiKey on your hand or your keychain or, you know, nearby or in a known location versus, you know, knowing that your phone has nothing on it. And I would usually prefer that my phone have absolutely nothing useful on it, whether it be taken by law enforcement or um, stolen, um, that there's nothing useful on the device. And that's what I'd probably recommend. That's your better choice. But if you're like me and you do still like to use your device and just try to limit as much as possible um, what uh, what you're using and who you're giving information to, um, I'm going to give my my uh, software or app recommendation for this week. And I'll give my book recommendation, or at least the thing I'm using, and I think it's probably a good idea to use if you're looking for something like it. Net News Wire uh, is a iOS and macOS application, and uh, it's just a it's an RSS feed reader. It's actually pretty good uh, if, if you're interested in RSS, and I think there's some arguments on why you should be. Uh, it is a, a pretty nice application, and uh, it gives you the ability to yeah, input RSS codes, or you can do things like uh, I also still have some YouTube channels that I like to follow. And when I'm on Android, I can use something like NewPipe for, um, for watching YouTube or getting notified when a channel that I want to see posts something. Um, in this case, NetNewsWire, you can put in a, uh, a YouTube link to a channel, um, 
and it will bring in, uh, it'll generate like an RSS feed. So you'll get a notification, you know, when they post, which is fantastic. And then I can just go to YouTube in a browser and I can watch the video if I want to. Um, and you can also uh, run that same application on macOS, and it's a great application. It honestly is. Um, it's an open source app. So Net Newswire, if you're on iOS or macOS, is a nice RSS feed reader, um, and a good way to start getting away from uh, from using applications on your phone. So my recommendation is going to be my software this time, and that would be one of my Ooh, apps. You're talking about yeah, it. Yeah, my uh, CM Next is what I called it, CM Next. That is my application for hosting or publishing your own, say, podcast or uh, blog, is what it was meant for, on your own hardware, uh, self-hosted, of course. So it uses my own framework. It's an experimental framework for HTTP web server hosting, and it is completely cross-platform, or ideally completely cross-platform, I just finished up the documentation or most of the important stuff this past week. And by the time you're hearing this, it should be in a release form that you can download. It is not for everybody. It's mostly just for front-end developers or people that might be dabbling with websites and know how to use WebFetch. Maybe you know how to use Node.js and uh, how to add packages. It's kind of who it's meant for. Where you just need your own CMS without wanting to go pay for a serverless solution or manage your own files in like an S3 or your FTP by hand, you have a nice admin interface where you can publish and it also supports uh, arbitrary content. So you can add arbitrary content. It is multi-channel. So you can create a theoretically infinite number of channels to publish content to. It supports podcast 2.0. So you can actually upload your podcast episodes as content and then reference them in a post. So that show up as an actual podcast episode. It also allows you to edit your XML feed properties, which you'll need to do. And you can add enclosures so you can search for content that you've added. So you'll, you'll upload your podcast episode and then you can add your enclosure and it will create all of the required sort of XML properties for your feed. And it's fully configurable. And so if you want to run your own podcast, so if you go to my website and you want to check out what it looks like, you can uh, check out this podcast that you're listening to on my website and maybe do it yourself. And this, yeah, this podcast is also uh, run and hosted and published from my own version of CM Next. So the last thing I guess I would say is that it also requires you to use your own public storage. So whether that be FTP or S3 is currently what it supports. And that would be like where your actual content resides. And that's really all you need. The admin service only needs to be running when you want to modify, add, or edit your posts. It's not meant to be public-facing. doesn't need to be, although I suppose it can be. It does support multi-user with permissions controls. And it also has TOTP authentication support. So you can use second-factor authentication. You can also use first-factor certificate authentication that I just spoke about um, with my PKI Authenticator tool, which is a cross-platform desktop app that supports YubiKey as well. So maybe I'll talk about that next week. So CM Next. Check it out if you're interested. Fantastic. Uh, book, what am I reading this week? Uh, the Marshmallow Test by uh, Walter Mischill, I believe is how you say it. I don't know how to say his last name. I've heard the theory um, or I've heard the, the concept of uh, testing and understanding the human's uh, ability to delay gratification. 
and this is just a, a good a good test by someone who spent you know I think it's probably about 40 years um, you know uh, monitoring people from the time they were kids and how they reacted when presented with the opportunity to uh, accept a great uh, reward now or delay for a better reward later and it was done using marshmallows which was the point of the test but it's actually a pretty fantastic book and a really good like psychological understanding of uh, of delayed gratification and satisfaction so the marshmallow test is what i'm reading this week and it is a good book so embarrassingly unfortunately uh, i haven't been able to read a whole lot in a bit so i don't actually have a new book i still have the previous books that are quite large books uh to read and i just haven't taken the time to do that in a little bit so sorry guys i don't have one myself so as always thank you very much for making it to the end of this episode everything that we talked about privacy not included uh, the other podcast links the tools the apps uh, they will always be in the description of these episodes of course i may forget to put some links in there i try to put them all down as i hear them in the chat after the fact um, you click on those you can go to the website to check out this podcast any of my software anything we worked on our contact information is also there. That's the best place for it. So uh, description, we'll have the website. I will also have my Nostra public key as well. If you want to contact me on Nostra somehow, you're more than welcome to do that. So we'd love to hear feedback from you. As in previous episodes, if there's anything that we got wrong, you want us to cover on future episodes, or there's some more uh, future things you want us to talk about in future episodes, um, please feel free to uh, send me an email or send me a message on Nostra. Uh, either way uh, works just fine for me. So Thank you very much again for listening.